It's wonderful to be here with all of you today, and we, <clears throat> and we, we say welcome. We have quite a few of our members that are missing today, and we hope that all is well with them, but we have a great crowd because you are here. I do consider it an honor always to speak concerning the Word of God, and I'm really enjoying the series that we're doing on the greatest sermon ever preached. And that's the Sermon on the Mount covered in Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 6, and Matthew chapter 7. As you can see on the screen, I have Matthew 5, verses 38 through 42, and I've entitled our remarks, Going the Second Mile. And you might remember if you looked at the last thing that I talked about when Jesus dealt with the concept of marriage and how marriage is binding and all of that, there's another group of scriptures that follows that that I'm going to skip for a time. I'll probably get back to them. But that group of scriptures is covering swearing and taking oaths and what all that means, and that's really a deep subject. And I thought I would skip that for now because I really want to talk on this subject. I want to talk about going the second mile. I want to share something with you before we begin, though. When I was a younger man, and I gave a lot of lessons, even as a younger preacher, I remember that all of my lessons that I gave were pretty much topical. I would get a topic in mind, and I would study out the topic, and I would find passages of Scripture that fit my topic. And while that's fine, what can happen to us sometimes is sometimes we grab a topic, and then we look at Scriptures to support the topic, and sometimes... We don't go into the context of the passages, and we can take those things a little bit out of context and just make our own application. So something happened to me about 15 years ago. I was diagnosed with cancer, and you all know that. And I'm going to tell you, sometimes with adversity and with pain and suffering, sometimes comes a lot of good. And a lot of good came from my being sick. One of the things that came from my being sick is it changed the way I studied the Bible. I was so sick and I couldn't talk and I couldn't swallow, so all I could do is study for like a year. And it changed the way I studied. I no longer studied to write sermons on topics. I just studied the Bible. And all of a sudden, all of these topics started leaping off the page at me when I just studied the Bible. So a number of years ago, I decided that the way that I'm going to teach is the way that Jesus set the example as the master teacher and that is giving an expository lesson or saying the scriptures, teaching the scriptures, and then giving an application that people can understand and people could apply to their life. And that's what I'm going to do with regards to this subject of going the second mile. What did Jesus actually mean? Well, our text is taken in verse 41 of Matthew chapter 5. Jesus said this, whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. What an interesting concept, but the last two sections of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is addressing the Christian's position toward his enemies. That's the context. Please get that. Jesus is dealing with the Christian's position toward his enemies. In fact, in these last two sections, in verses 38 through 42 that we're going to discuss today, Jesus is encouraging certain restraints, and then in verses 43 through 48, Jesus is encouraging certain actions. But when you put them together, you have a perfectly balanced code of conduct. In other words, you put the sections combined, you put them together, and proper conduct emerges. Let's go back to verse 38, though. It's a very familiar passage, and everybody has quoted this perhaps in their life, the phrase, an eye for an eye. Jesus said this going back in verse 38. You have heard that it was said, 
an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. The law of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth actually goes back to the Old Testament and can be found in a number of passages. I'll notice one with you. It's found in the book of Exodus chapter 21 beginning in verse 23. But if any, any harm follows, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, and stripe for stripe. In other words, under the Mosaic Law, Mosaic Law was to be carried out to the proper judicial form. But here's the problem. But by the day that Jesus was living, many perversions were happening within the Mosaic system. People were taking the law into their own hands. And you know that kind of happens even today. You know, we have laws that are over us and we're protected by laws. We'll get to that in just a moment. But we're protected by laws that are over us. But sometimes people take it too far and they pervert what the law is supposed to be and they take matters into their own hands. And when people take matters into their own hands, they have all kinds of trouble. There was perversions occurring within the judicial system of Moses. And you know what happened? Personal revenge started kicking in. Personal revenge replaced judicial justice. And people acted as their own judge and jury. All right. You know who really misinterpreted the law that was under the law of Moses? One of the things that was really perverted was by those of the scribes. And I don't have time to go into all the things about the scribes. The Bible talks about the scribes and the Pharisees, and Jesus addressed them so many times. And I don't have time to go into that. Let me just say this about this point. The scribes had the knowledge of the law, and they could even draft legal documents. What they missed the point was, under Mosaic law, this point or this law of an eye for an eye, it was actually designed as a way of mercy and as a way of benevolence and not revenge. They used it as a way to justify anger and malice and hatred and bitterness. And I think that's sometimes what we do, isn't it? Somebody wrongs us, and we want to go to the extreme to wrong them back or give them back what's coming to them because we don't like what happened to us, and that happens. That's kind of human nature. That actually happened back then under the law of Moses. Jesus knew that. But did you know that the concept of the law of an eye for an eye actually was for four reasons and actually had four positive results? This is what God intended. This is what it was for. It encouraged restraint. It was a control mechanism. Number two, it was fair and just. In other words, those that were in a position of judging or judicial areas, they could fairly judge and they could fairly sentence. Number three, it was merciful. It eliminated excessive retaliation. An eye for an eye. In other words, it was fair treatment. And number four, this is huge. It prevented crime. Swift punishment produced fear. Some of you that have known me for a long time have heard me say this. I actually had this in an old, old sermon many years ago. And I said this statement. I said, crime is not deterred by the severity of the punishment, but crime is deterred by the certainty of it. In other words, if there's no other way out and you're going to get in trouble, you're probably not going to commit the crime. Let me give you an example. I used this example too, I don't know, 20 years ago. But I did a little research. actually did it this morning. I looked it up and found some new statistics, and it kind of supports my point. Years ago, Singapore had laws. There was absolutely no tolerance policy whatsoever. If you were caught drug trafficking, okay, 
and all the drug lords and all the drug traffickers, if you were caught selling drugs, it was an immediate death sentence. Absolute immediate death sentence. No big trial. No get the dream team. No way to get off. You, were, you died. You were executed. They still have the death penalty for drug traffickers, but here's the difference. In drug trafficking now in Singapore, it is regulated by how much drugs you actually have and how much you actually sold. So guess what? Crime has gone the way back up again because they modified the law. Crime is deterred by the certainty of the punishment. People take chances, right? On death row right now, as of August 2023, this year, there are 50 people, 50 men on death row in Singapore. And only three actually committed a murder. So it deters crime. The problem is, when it's not totally certain, people take chances. And now, guess what's happening in Singapore? The crime rate for drugs is going up. What once was no problem at all. That happens. God said with this eye for an eye concept, it encouraged restraint, it was fair and just, it was merciful, and it prevented crime because it was immediate. Jesus says all of that, but then Jesus says this in the next verse, but I say to you, do not resist an evil person. In other words, the child of God must seek a higher ethic, and that's God. And I'm going to tell you something. I am not perfect and sometimes I really want to, not physically, like physical altercations, but sometimes I want to retaliate. In fact, I used an example that happened. Tanner was there. I used this example in, when I gave a lesson in Oakdale not long ago. I talked about the spirit of meekness. And meekness, what Jesus talked about, is the epitome of strength. Meekness is about strength. It's about not worrying what your personal rights are. There was a guy that we were blocking some parking places off with cones on a job we were doing, a commercial job, and he decided to back in between the cones anyway. He talked to my guys pretty rough, said some terrible things, and I thought, you know what? He shouldn't get away with that. So I confronted him, not to have a physical altercation, just to say, hey, man, there's no reason to talk like that. It escalated, and the guy wanted to fight. What are we, high school? I saw that man the other day. I walked up to him. The guy was mean. The guy was mad. The guy was angry. The guy was rotten. He still was when I talked to him again. But you know what I did? I walked up to him. I stuck my hand out. I said, you know what, sir? There's no reason why we ought to have a problem. I escalated that because I tried to confront you. I should have let it go. Clearly, you're very angry. You know what he said? I'm not angry. He got mad yelling at me. I'm not angry. Okay, I patted him on the shoulder and I said, okay, have a nice day. That's what I should have done the first time. What we want to do is retaliate because that's our nature. We want to stand up for our rights. Jesus is saying, wait a minute, don't have the spirit of retaliation. Remember, the higher ethic is God letting God deal with it. Paul addressed this issue in Romans 12, 17, repay no one evil for evil. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 4 and 12, and we labor working with our hands, being reviled, we bless, being persecuted, we endure. 
In 1 Peter chapter 2 and 19, Peter actually commends those who suffer wrong. And you know what he does? He uses Jesus as the example of somebody that suffered and did nothing. Wow. The example Jesus did with his behavior. But I think the Lord's command must be interpreted, though, in light of its context, because Jesus was not teaching that we are to be spiritually passive. In fact, Jesus is saying this, minimize personal pride, personal dignity, and be willing to accept behavior that comes our way that's not fair, and sometimes that is difficult for us to endure that is not fair. In other words, revenge is unacceptable because God is ultimately in control and God will take care of it. Romans chapter 12 and verse 19. Beloved, do not avenge yourself, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Do you know what this means, give place to wrath? It's divine wrath. Give it to God. I'm going to tell you something. When you're angry because of what somebody has done for you, they may, or done to you, they may leave and never think about you ever again, and you're boiling inside because of what happened. Don't let them do that. Don't give them the power. Don't give them that kind of control over your life. Give it to God because God says, I'll take care of it. Now, first of all, I have to make a point that the Lord is not teaching that Christians cannot take advantage of legal or civil rights or civil authority or civil protection that is over them. Because in Romans chapter 13, I love Romans 13. I'm so glad that God has put together these structures. The Bible says in Romans 13 that the powers that be are ordained of God, even to the point when it says he does not bear the sword in vain. Even the death penalty, God has put that in structure to take care of two things. There's two things, by the way, that the law does for us, and we're allowed to benefit from it and take advantage of it. You know what the two things are? Here they are. Number one, it protects the innocent. Number two, it punishes the wicked. And Paul says in Romans 13, you don't have to worry if you're a good person obeying the law. You don't have to worry about the law. It's there to protect you. You can see a police officer and wave to him and be happy. If you're breaking the law, man, you run from the law. It's to put fear in evildoers and it's to give comfort to those who do good. All that being said, though, we need to exercise caution because even with the illegal structure that protects us, what oftentimes begins as a quest for justice quickly ends in a hunt for vengeance. Letsky said this, The law is not placed in our hands, but is taken out of them. The very God who placed that law and its execution where it belongs into the hands of the government places another law and its execution, the law of love, into the hearts of Christ's disciples. Okay, but there are areas where we should not be passive. When should we not be passive? Number one, when God's honor or truth is at stake, we should not be passive. Christians have to resist some stuff too. Even though we don't resist an evil person personally, we do resist evil. Have to. Another thing we got to resist and if you're having trouble with temptation, please, the most practical passage, one of the most practical passages in all the Bible about temptation is James 4 and 7. If you're having a struggle, then remember what it says. Submit yourself, therefore, to God, and then resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Two things. i got to do both. i got to submit to God, and i got to resist the devil. So if I'm having a really hard time with temptation, 
and weaknesses and falling back. And most of the time, we fall back on the same weaknesses over and over because that's our weaknesses. If that's the case, then ask yourself, am I doing both? I have to do both. I have to submit to God, and i got to resist the devil. i got to do both. So we do have to resist some things. What does Paul tell Titus? Paul told Titus, resist evil talkers in Titus, excuse me, Titus chapter 1, verses 9 through 13. Even when Jesus cleansed the temple, he came in and he was angry. By the way, being angry is not a problem. Sinning because of your anger is the problem. Jesus was angry. And he overturned the tables of the money changers who were stealing from people. And he said, you've made my father's house a den of thieves. He was angry and he overturned the tables of the money changers. What was Jesus doing? He was resisting evil. He was not resisting an evil person that he is telling us not to do. So what was he talking about? What's the point? What the Lord is talking about here, he's referring to all forms of personal treatment. Here they are. What do we resist? These forms of personal mistreatment. Here they are. The loss of honor, the loss of property, the loss of freedom, and the loss of control. That's what he's going to deal with with these passages that are before us today. Four real-life applications. Notice the first one found in the second part of Matthew 5 and 39. And man, when you look at this, this is a rough one. Here we go. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. Everybody has heard the phrase, turn the other cheek. Everybody's heard that phrase. But what does it actually mean? Was Jesus actually saying that if somebody smacks me on this side of my face, I got to stand there and go ahead and be smacked on the other side of my face? By the way, I can't imagine anybody standing there getting smacked in the face. And now they got a sport. Yeah, they got a sport now. They stand there like this. And the one guy gets to just rear back and smack him as hard as he can. And if the guy doesn't fall, then the other guy gets to, he gets his turn. What a dumb sport. Jesus was not talking about literally necessarily being smacked in the face as a command. Please notice, this part is a command. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. That's a command. In other words, don't have the spirit of retaliation. That's the command. The example that he's using is extreme. And it's the idea of somebody slapping you on the cheek. What's he talking about? He's talking about somebody taking your honor. That's the point. i got to tell you something. I'd rather be punched in the mouth than smacked in the face. When somebody slaps you in the face, it is a form of disrespect. Absolutely. Absolutely. What they're saying is, I'm taking away your honor, your manhood. What are you going to do about it? You know, some societies in some countries, when they have a duel, you know what they do? They take the gloves out and they smack the other person in the face, provoking a duel. You know why? Here's my honor. I'm going to take your honor, smack you in the face. What are you going to do about it? Then you take out your swords and you go to the duel. That's what certain customs in certain countries do. That's what he's talking about. It's a gross insult to be smacked in the face. It's public. It's antagonistic. It's deliberate. What he's saying is, is don't have the mind or the spirit of retaliation when somebody wants to take away your honor. And the extreme example he gives is even if somebody smacks you in the face. Wow. Well, let's talk about Jesus. Talk about the greatest man that ever lived, the strongest man that ever lived. What did Jesus do? He had the perfect example of this disposition. 
He staunchly defended the truth. He staunchly upheld the law of God. But he didn't care about himself. He didn't care about his own personal honor at all. He didn't care about that at all. He wasn't concerned about that one, one bit. They, they spit in his face. They beat him. They mocked him. He never retaliated. He was, as the prophet Isaiah spoke in Isaiah 53, like a lamb before the slaughter. Like a sheep before its shear is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. I'm going to tell you something. If you think that's weakness, that is not. That is strength. Have you ever stopped to consider? Jesus said, I could call down 12 legions of angels and put a stop to the whole thing. That's how influential he was. That's how powerful he was. That's how much he had from God. He could have done it, but he didn't. He submitted. Submission is the ultimate form of strength. Man, that's, that's strong. Isaiah predicted this too about Jesus. Notice, these, this is speaking in the words of Jesus before Jesus was crucified. Isaiah 50 and 6. I gave my back to those who struck me. And my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. When Jesus was hanging on the cross. And you know, this is really a picture of forgiveness. And I want you to please grasp this. Because sometimes people think, I don't have to forgive somebody unless they ask me. I've actually heard people say that. In fact, I'm not required. In fact, I even heard somebody say one time, I'm not even allowed to forgive unless they really say, forgive me. Did you know you could forgive anybody for any reason at any time? Now, there's a difference between us forgiving somebody and God forgiving somebody. If they want God's forgiveness, they got to get it from God. But my forgiveness, I can give it to anybody. Give you the perfect example. Jesus is hanging on the cross in Luke 23, and of all the things that were happening, the painful nails between his hands and his feet and all that. And he says, you know the words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What was Jesus doing? We talk about the pain of the cross. What about the shame? What about the honor? Was he concerned about his own honor? No. Hebrews 12, 2 says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. The shame of the cross. That's loss of honor. Now Jesus is going to deal with loss of property. He says this now. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. What's this talking about? By the way, a tunic was an undergarment or a shirt. Okay? The cloak was more important. It was more valuable. It cost more. And the cloak was more valuable because the cloak was used, I don't know, like a long overcoat. But the cloak was used at nighttime as a blanket. What they would do is they would take their cloak, it was very valuable, and they would cover themselves at night. It would protect them from cold and rainy nights. Very important. That's what it was. It was valued higher than the undergarment or the tunic. In the people of the Lord's day, they only had one cloak because uh, nobody had, you know, there were very many people that were rich. Something about the cloak in the Old Testament. You could actually give your cloak to someone as a token. In other words, I'm going to give you something as a pledge. 
whether you have a deal, a business deal here, in order to show you that I'm telling the truth, here's my cloak. But the cloak had to be returned under Mosaic law by nightfall. Why? Because that's what you used as a blanket at night. Watch what the Bible says in Exodus 22 and 26. If you ever take your neighbor's garment as a pledge, that's talking about the cloak, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. Why am I showing you this passage? I'm showing you this passage to show Jesus is saying, if somebody comes to you and they say, give me your tunic, give me your shirt, give me your cloak too. Now, what it doesn't mean is this. It doesn't mean if somebody literally sues you for something that you don't have, you don't, that's, that, in other words, you don't have to give that. They're wrong. They wrongfully sue you. And then you just give them double. That's not what that means. It's a principle and an example. If somebody basically saying this, the Christians have this mindset. If somebody says, wait a minute, give me your shirt. Oh, okay. Give me your cloak too. It's all part of second mile stuff that we're going to get to in just a moment. In other words, give them both voluntarily. That's the spirit of the Christian. That's loss of property. What about loss of liberty or freedom? And now we get to our passage. Matthew 5, 41, whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. What is this talking about in context? During the day of Jesus, Roman rule prevailed. And you had, to, you had to live under Roman law, okay? One of the laws, believe it or not, that existed was a Roman soldier could have a Jewish person traveling along as a companion on a journey. And by Roman law, the Roman soldier could make the Jewish citizen carry his pack for one mile. In other words, here's my pack. You are a Jewish person following me. Carry this one mile. And you would have to do it by law. It infuriated the Jewish citizen. They hated that. It relieved the soldier but it inconvenienced and angered the citizen. You know why? Because you're asking somebody to carry their enemy's weapons. Look at the mindset here. Look at the picture that Jesus is describing here about second mile. Going the second mile. He's going to teach a great lesson here. He uses the example of somebody compels you to go one mile carrying the pack, carrying the, uh, the, the weapons of your enemy for one mile. You're going to go too. Now, let me just mention something about Rome and the Jews. They hated being under the oppressive thumb of Rome. And I'll be very brief, but I have to mention, do you remember when Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem? And he rides in on that Sunday, I believe it was on a Sunday, and he rode in on the back of a colt of a donkey. And they began to say, Hosanna to the highest. And the word Hosanna can be interpreted and can be defined as a form of praise, but that's not what they meant. The word Hosanna there comes from the Hebrew Hoshia Na, and that means God save us. Did Jesus come to save them? Yes, but they misunderstood. They thought that Jesus was going to save them with an earthly kingdom of the oppressive thumb of Rome. Finally, Rome's going to be off our backs. What they didn't realize is Jesus didn't come to, to save them from Rome. He came to save them from sin, like he did for the whole world. And they misunderstood the whole thing. 
So the oppressive thumb of Rome was always on them, and they hated it. So when a soldier would say, carry my pack for a mile, it infuriated them. You know what Jesus says? Oh, I got a different, uh, I got a different thing. You're gonna, I got a different tactic. I got a different mindset for you. This is a humiliating practice, by the way, and it didn't originate with Rome. It traces all the way back to the Persian Empire under Cyrus, and it was adopted by Rome, this practice. What's the point? The point is this. Every servant of God must be also a servant of those that rule over us. That's a fact. At this time, it would have been Caesar. So that's what going the second mile means in the context that Jesus gave it. This is extreme, absolutely. In other words, what he's saying is, do it cheerfully. If somebody compels you to go one mile, the application is, go with him too. Don't you see the mindset? I don't care about my rights. I'm going to be a servant. I'm going to be a server of others. Our brother prayed about, and I thought about that song, about the beauty of Jesus. Remember that song, Let the Beauty of Jesus Be Seen in Me. That's what it's all about. And if somebody compels you to go a mile, don't think about your right. Just go too, okay? And do it cheerfully. That's the point. I know all this stuff's hard. And by the way, if it wasn't hard, the Lord wouldn't have to instruct us. We just do it automatically, but it's hard. Go the second mile too. In application for us then, what does second mile religion mean? It means we are to manifest the same demeanor that Jesus is talking about specifically in this example in our everyday lives, in our spiritual lives, in our family relationships, and even in our occupations. Yes, even in our jobs. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 5. Bond servants, be obedient to those who are, over, who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling and sincerity of heart as to Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ. Doing the will of God from the heart with goodwill, doing service as to the Lord and not to men. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Paul adds something, though, in Philippians. Do all things without complaining and disputing. Okay. When a person complains, okay, everybody looks bad including the person doing the complaining. Sometimes we think that if we complain, the only one looking bad is the one we're complaining about. But really, when you complain, you are also looking bad. What about in the workplace? It's like the person that complains to all the other employees about their employer or about their boss or about their manager. It makes everybody look bad. So I'm going to say this. This does not mean that if you have a dispute, if you have a true complaint, that you cannot go to your superior, your supervisor, your boss, and you can voice those things. It's not what that means. What it means is be the right kind of person in every aspect of your life, including as an employee, and do it without complaining to other people. All right, what about this? What if you got a rotten boss? Man, I got a rotten one. Boy, I got a rotten one. What about this? 1 Peter 2 and 8, servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only for the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. 
Got to be the same way. And if we can't be that kind of a person or that kind of a Christian in our workplace, then just quit. Get another job. You don't have to put up with it if you're being mistreated. But take the complaint to the one that can matter and not just complain and murmur behind the scenes. When you do that, everybody looks bad. All right. Let me give you a great example of what all this means. Second mile religion is this. That Christians need to show a willingness to be imposed on rather than wanting to impose on others. And the greatest example that I can think about is a very familiar example. I'm going to tell you a little Bible story. The story when there was a lawyer, there was a man. I won't spend too much time, but i got to tell the story. There was a lawyer, and he comes to Jesus. And first of all, the Bible says he comes to Jesus trying to test him. That's a big mistake. He comes to Jesus, and he tries to test Jesus, thinking he's going to stump Jesus. And he says, tell me, Master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, what does the law say, and how do you read it? And the lawyer says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, okay, you've said, well, do that and you will live. But then the Bible says that the lawyer seeking to justify himself, he says this, oh, wait a minute, but who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? You know why? He didn't want to go the second mile. He didn't want to do that. He wanted to know, give me the bare minimum, that's all I'm going to do. Jesus says, well, let me tell you a little story. He said, there was a man one time, and he was on the road to Jericho, and he fell among thieves. And the Jericho road that went from Jerusalem to Jericho descended some 3,000 feet and covered about 15 miles. It was filled with highwaymen. It was rough and rife with robbers and all of that. The man's by himself and he falls among thieves and they beat him and they leave him for dead. And a priest came. Yeah, a worshiper of God. And the Bible says when he saw him, he passed by on the other side, did nothing. Then here comes a Levite, a worker in the temple. Here he comes, and he's worse. You know what it says? It says, when he came and looked on him, he passed by on the other side. That was even worse. Maybe the man that's laying there for dead, looking over and seeing the priest says, oh, that's a worshiper of God. He's a servant of God. Surely a servant of God will help me, but he doesn't. And then when he saw the Levite, the worker, man, he's a worker. He understands stuff. He'll help me. But he passes by on the other side. And Jesus says, here comes a Samaritan. And the Jews hated Samaritans. It was a combination of a Jew and a Gentile. They hated him. Wouldn't worship with them. Couldn't stand him. Avoided Samaria on their travels. Everything. And he comes and he sees the man and he gets off his animal and he sees his wounds and he takes oil and wine and he pours it into his wounds and he takes bandages and he wraps it up and he takes the man and he puts him on his animal and he takes him into the inn. And he spends the night cooling his fevered brow and he cares for him all night long and the next morning he goes to the keeper of the inn and he reaches into his pouch and he pulls out money. How much? Two denarii. That's two days wages. Now think about what you make in a day. Two days wages and he hands it to the keeper of the inn. And he says, you take care of him while I leave now. And when I get back, when I get back, if that's not enough, I'll pay for it. Jesus says, tell me, who was neighbor to that man? 
And the lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. That is second mile religion. Sometimes we think that second mile religion is only our service to God because we misunderstand what our service to God is. And we think that our service to God is just, I go to church all the time, I'm just, I follow with the word of God, I follow the Bible, and then go do whatever I want. No. Service to God, yes, is worship to God. Yes, it's included, yes. But serving God is also including serving others. I'm going to make a very bold statement. You can't serve God acceptably without serving others. Now, serving others does not erase your duty to God in spiritual matters. It's included. But let's not exclude the kind of people we should be. What did that lawyer say? You got to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Finally, the last one. Jesus deals with the lack of self, or the lack of control, not self-control, the lack of control in this passage, verse 42. He talks about lending. He said, give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. All right. Again, a very extreme example. Nobody, you never relinquish control more than when you lend your money to somebody else. I want to say something about control, though, okay? And those of you that are older probably would agree by way of experience. But what I found in my life when I was younger, I thought, man, I'm going to be, I'm a control guy. I'm going to control stuff. I'm going to make all these decisions so that I am in control. I've got it all mapped out. I've got it all lined up. Here's my plans. Here's my business plan. Here's my financial plan. Here's my family plan. Man, I got her dialed in. Do you know that control is an illusion? You could be in business and today it can be good and tomorrow it can be bad. And it could be totally out of your control. Understand control is an illusion. What Jesus is trying to instruct here is the concept of losing control. You relinquish control personally when you give or lend to somebody else. You don't know if you're going to ever get that back. You have no idea if you're going to ever get that back. Human nature says this, man, hold on selfishly to what is mine. I'm not sharing. But remember this. Okay? Remember this. God owns everything. What you have, God has blessed you and allowed you to have. If you are blessed and you are blessed in your giving, God has blessed you with more so you can give more and do more. Don't you see our entire life, our lives are a life of service? It's our life. By the way, Christianity is not what we do, it's what we are. It's who we are. I can stand here and I could preach a long time and I try hard not to do that. I'm almost finished, but I'm going to tell you, I could do that. But that's not the most important thing in terms of my influence over those that either listen to me or follow me or know who I am or watch my example. I'm going to tell you right now, the most important thing is, do you see it in my life? That's what matters. Like the saying that says, your actions speak so loudly, I cannot hear a word you say. 
Christianity is who we are. It's what we are in every aspect of our life. We are not our own. We've been bought with a price, 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Or do you not know that your body, get this, is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Let that soak in. When I was 18, I was so dumb. I thought, man, I'm an old man. No. No. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who you have from God, and that you are not your own? So, our conduct needs to be generous, generous and liberal toward others. Now, Mosaic law provided for lending to the poor. So Jesus' words must be interpreted in light of such a context. In Exodus chapter 22, beginning in verse 25, If you lend money to any of my people who are poor among you, notice, you shall not be like the money lender to him. You shall not charge him interest. If you ever take your neighbor's garment as a pledge, here's that passage again. It's a different passage, same thing. You shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering. It is his garment for his skin. What will he sleep in? And it will be when, that when he cries to me, I will hear, for I am gracious. Lending in the Old Testament. Okay, I got to say this too, and I want to tell you this too, and this is not in any way, shape, or form a, a positive on me. I, I'm an easy target. I, I know that. And I've been taken advantage of. If somebody asks me for something and says they promise it's not for drugs or alcohol or whatever, I've been taken advantage of. They, and one time, I saw the guy around the corner, bought a bottle and find around the corner at the, at the mission in San Luis Obispo. It goes all the way back to college I've been doing that. So I get, I could be an easy mark. Well, there's some encouraging passages here. First of all, it's never wrong to give. If you give... And you get taken advantage of it, it's okay. But I'm just saying this. I've learned a little something. Because I usually feel really guilty about not giving to everybody that asks or needs. So I, I feel a little bit better. A Christian is under no obligation to lend to those who are lazy, undeserving, or greedy. Because that would violate other scriptures. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 10. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. Now, I got to tell you, there's a difference between somebody that's looking for a job and just hasn't found one yet, and somebody that refuses to get a job. I'm just going to kick back and do nothing. The Bible says that a man that does not work should not eat. 1 Timothy 5 and verse 8, But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Another passage, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 11, That you also aspire to leave a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we command you. Okay, all that being said and all that's true, the Christian must be open-hearted and generous to those who do have legitimate needs. And we know the difference. James chapter 2, I love this passage because sometimes people say, you know, works don't matter. Yeah, works matter. Not works of merit, but works of obedience. Sure, you demonstrate your faith by your works. How do you do that? James 2 says, what does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith and does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do nothing for them. You do not give them the things which are needed for the body. What is a profit? Thus also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So, 
What's Jesus doing in these passages in this masterful sermon? He is covering four forms of mistreatment and how to respond to each one of them. And it requires a tremendous amount of self-restraint. Here's the four points again. Loss of honor. If somebody tries to take your honor, don't have a spirit of retaliation. You know what? God will deal with that. Have the spirit of meekness. Like Jesus said earlier in the chapter, even gives the extreme of slapping on the cheek. Don't have a spirit of retaliation. Number two, loss of property. Somebody comes to you and says, hey, man, give me that, give me that coat. Give me that shirt. I, I really need your shirt. Okay, give me a cloak too. It's the mindset. It's the giving mindset. Loss of liberty or freedom. Somebody compels you, go a mile. Ah, go two. Go the extra mile. And we do that in every aspect of our life, both spiritually and temporally, in our relationships and our occupations and all of that. That is our life. That is who we are. But just remember this. This includes, or the context is dealing with how you deal with people. Please get that. How you deal with people. And finally, the last, the, the loss of control. Somebody asked to borrow, relinquish control. Remember, it's all God's anyway. And those that are deserving and those that really need it, do what you can. When ability meets opportunity, then we have responsibility to give. And that's the purpose of what the Lord was trying to say. I'm finished this morning. Thank you so much for your kind listening. I hope this makes sense. I hope something was said that was helpful to you in some way. We never close a time when we teach from the word of God without extending an invitation to somebody that might be subject to the gospel call. The invitation to become a Christian is very simple. Romans 10, 17 says we got to hear the word of God. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's what has the ability to produce being saved. Then we have a choice to make. we got to believe with all your heart. Hebrews 11 and 6. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. But then i got to make a change. i got to change my life. i got to change my heart. i got to change my ways. All that is a simple word called repentance. Repenting of my sins. Acts 17 and 30. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. And then be willing to make the greatest statement you will ever make, confessing Jesus Christ as the Son of God, Acts 8 and 37. Then Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Upon taking these steps of obedience, you're now a fit candidate to go to the point of salvation, to contact the blood of Jesus at baptism, which is what saves you. In Mark 16, 16, be baptized for the remission of sins. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. But he who does not believe will be condemned. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 1030 a.m. and 5 p.m and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.